CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. This episode is about saying you're sorry. When should you say sorry and when should you stand your ground? What truly makes an apology meaningful? We uncover all of this and the truth about apologies with our guest, Sean O'Mara. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we had two guests discuss the light side and the dark side of influence. If you want to use Jedi mind tricks to influence others, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Sean. Sean O'Mara is the founder and managing director of Essential Content, a specialist content and PR agency. He's also the co-author of The Apology Impulse, How the Business World Ruined Sorry and Why We Can't Stop Saying It. He has worked with organizations including the BBC, Trello, Co-op Bank, and many more. Sean, welcome to the Science of Success. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're excited to have you on here today. And I'd love to start with a bigger question, which is really, in many ways, we almost live today in a culture of apology. And your book really strikes at that in many ways. So I'm curious, how did you pick this topic to really delve into? And and why do you think that culture has really emerged in, in our society? I think there are two 
main reasons why we're now seeing and hearing a lot more apologies. They're both social trends or social movements. So the first kind of accelerant of the public apology frequency that we're getting now in in our news is to do with social media. So social media has given consumers two really important things. It's given them access to brands, whereas before social media, if you wanted to raise an issue with a brand, it, it took a little bit of effort. You would have to write a letter or ring head office. Now you can you can literally do it via your phone in a few taps. So we've got greater accessibility to brands and that has given the consumer much more accountability. So the brands now, they've figured it out over the past few years that they have to answer to consumers. And what's actually happened, I think, has been a little bit of an overcorrection. So, you know, social media was good because it did provide accountability. And the pendulum has swung a little bit too far the other way. And now brands, instead of providing reasonable accountability and ensuring that consumers aren't mistreated, what we see is uh, brands kind of groveling and apologizing when really they they don't owe anybody an apology. So the reason myself and Professor Carrie Cooper wrote this book was because we've worked together on articles in the past and I'm a publicist by trade. So my my whole career is, is based around protecting reputations. And something happened a couple of years ago that with a client of mine that really changed my thinking on the, the kind of concept of the corporate apology. So I went over uh, and spoke to Carrie about it. So what happened was this client family-run business in the logistics sector, and they offered uh, relocation services, shipping, storage, removals. And they'd received a complaint from a customer who'd said he tried to ship some tools from London to New Zealand. The tools got held up in customs. Now, he'd flown over. He'd, he'd got a, he was a very specialized engineer. He'd, he'd gone over for a job. And he couldn't get his tools. They weren't easily accessible on on the retail market. He couldn't just go and buy some replacements. So he was kind of stuck. And it turns out, my I spoke to my client, and my first piece of advice was, well, we need to apologize. And he said, well, I don't want to apologize because we, as policy, we advise all, all clients to ensure that their customs paperwork is correct. And we give them as much help as possible. Now, we we spoke to this customer a couple of times to warn them that their customs declarations weren't quite right. And it's something that the customer has to do for themselves. So long story short, the client had said, if I apologize, I'm I'm effectively accepting blame for something that A, wasn't my fault, and B, was something that I warned the customer about. So against my better judgment at the time, I said, okay, because the client really didn't want to apologize. So I said, what do we do? if we're not going to apologize. And, and he said, well, why don't we explain? So we responded to the customer because they'd escalated their uh, grievance from angry emails to Twitter. So the client's reputation was beginning to suffer the longer we didn't say anything. So I was overruled as the publicist and the client 
kind of said, here's, here's what I want to say. I don't want to appear unsympathetic, but I also don't want to appear that I've, you know, my company has done anything wrong. So we responded to the client and we said, we deliberately didn't say sorry. And, and we said, we appreciate that this is highly inconvenient for you. Although we did really try to press on you the importance of this, this paperwork. It's because you didn't complete this paperwork that you now don't have access to your tools. And then I sat back and I braced myself for a barrage of hate. This was in the public arena. People were you know, able to see these tweets. This guy was, he was tagging other people in. So I was very prepared for it to go south from there. And what surprised me and, and made me change my thinking on not just apologizing, but on reputation management in general was sometimes, in fact, most of the time, nothing bad happens if you don't say sorry. So that then kind of, it tuned me in to other apologies. And I started looking at other brands and every day there would be a brand saying sorry for something that I, I thought, you don't mean that. There is no way on earth you are actually sorry. You're, this is a quite clear public relations exercise. So I then kind of rewrote my own guidance for my clients on how to deal with criticism because that, that is kind of, where the the corporate apology comes from you you never it may have escaped me but i've never witnessed an apology that just came out of the blue that could have been concealed brands only apologize when their conduct is known so the, the consumer has kind of become the brand's conscience so what i started to do was advise my clients to follow a step-by-step -step process to deal with criticism and the first step is ask yourself sincerely are you at fault are you actually sorry? And then if the answer is no, follow these steps. And they, they involve explaining the situation, offering to help, and showing sympathy, and crucially, not saying sorry. If, on the other hand, the client is at fault and they do owe somebody an apology, there is, there is a step-by-step -step process of doing that. The first step is decide how sorry you are. And a point we try to make really, really uh, clearly in the book is that contrition exists on a spectrum. There is a huge difference between sorry your delivery was late versus sorry there was a fault in this car that caused you to crash and, and sustain injury. So the more you over-apologize, the more you devalue the actual concept of being sorry, you see brands are always extremely sorry they can't help themselves by kind of dialing up the, the intensity on their apology. So the first step is, are we sorry? Yes or no. The second step is how sorry. The third step is what we're going to do about it because an apology isn't worth anything if it's just words. There needs to be action. You need to communicate to a, a customer or an audience. We, we acknowledge that we failed and here's what we're going to do to put it right. And the best apologies always have that crucial ingredient of this is what you can expect from us going forward. Really nice example of that was JetBlue in, I think, 2004. They'd had a huge operational failure and lots of people were stranded in airports that they didn't want to be stranded in. Thousands of customers were upset. And not only were you know, these customers in the wrong place, there were other customers watching how JetBlue handled it. So they, their CEO, David Neilman, made what I would describe as the first social media apology. He made a YouTube video 
apologizing and also saying this will never happen again because we are doing this and here's what you can expect from us. And they actually wrote a customer bill of rights, published it on their website, and it's been on their website ever since. So the kind of thinking behind the book was we as publicists and business communicators are going to we're going to really wear out the the value of the word sorry if we keep keep going the way we're going. Customer trust is going to just tank, and we aren't going to have any uh, effective tools for crisis management, for handling criticism, and for building trust. So I wanted to, along with Carrie, uh, my co-author, write a book that could effectively rescue sorry from obscurity before you know the customer consumer trust in the word. Uh, disappeared completely. That's a great insight. Do you feel like in today's world that sorry has been already cheapened and, and, and devalued in some ways? I do. In both contexts, I think in interpersonal uh, relationships, especially in, in certain cultures. Uh, I'm from the UK and we're famous for using sorry as a social lubricant. I've I've noticed this for years, and I now I work really hard not to say sorry when I mean something else. So uh, a couple of years ago, I was standing on a train platform early in the morning, and there was me and there was one other guy on the platform, and he came over, and the first word out of his mouth was sorry, and then he said, "Sorry, do you know if this train goes to the airport?" Now, that's really common here. Sorry is kind of the icebreaker. And, you know, obviously the guy had nothing to apologize for, really, other than breaking the social convention of interrupting me from staring at my phone or whatever else I was doing. So the train did go to the airport. So I said, yeah, the next train goes to the airport. And we both got on with our lives. But I spent the rest of the day kind of paying attention to how many times people apologize. And people in the UK are kind of weirdly proud of this quirky awkwardness where you know, they say sorry when they don't mean it. I don't think we deserve to be proud of that. And I spend quite a lot of time in Spain where my parents live. And people in Spain don't think it's cute. And people in America, I've, you know, a friend of mine lives in uh, Dallas. And I remember noting the difference. I was over there for his wedding. So I was there for a good couple of weeks. And Americans seem to have a lot more vocabulary for those little moments, you know, those little kind of, excuse me, do you mind, can I interrupt you for one second kind of interactions. Whereas in the UK, it's always sorry. You'd be amazed at how many people start a conversation with the word sorry and then you know go on to talk about something that isn't an apology. That said, the UK aren't the worst in terms of apologizing. From the research we've done in the book, we aren't the sorriest culture. I think Japan has a very unique and interesting relationship with contrition. You can actually outsource your apology in Japan. There are apology agencies which will go and apologize for you. And looking into why that is, and Carrie, the co-author, is a renowned psychologist, so he had some insights on this anyway. A lot of it is to do with population density. If big cities in Japan are crowded, people are on uh, the subway, there's a lot of, you know, small kind of micro interactions. Um, 
The other thing is honor culture. Some cultures are a little bit more relaxed about uh, minor social transgressions. Different countries in Europe are, are very different about how they deal with, for example, getting in somebody's way on the street or holding a door versus not holding a door. And other cultures are very, very fixated and they, they really value those very small gestures. So I think a lot of work has already been done to devalue the apology. And I, I think everybody is guilty of it to a degree. I'm sure when I mean, I've done it, I'm sure you've done it. You've apologized when you weren't sorry, just to kind of placate somebody who was upset. Uh, you know, We have devalued it. We We are kind of in danger of it's a little bit like a currency. So, you know, the more of a currency that you issue, the lower the value becomes just because you're dealing in scarcity versus abundance. If something is available everywhere, people don't value it. If something is rare, it's a little bit more special. So in terms of going back to my original point of the two ways we've done it, as individuals, we do it all the time. We over-apologize and we apologize when we don't need to. And corporations have really kind of taken that theme and run with it. And it's, it's become especially true in the past few years, not just because of social media, but because of what, I mean, I, I don't like the term, but I guess the closest thing to it would be call out culture. So what we've noticed is before social media, a brand was kind of, they had a few responsibilities and they all related to your rights as a consumer. You, you would expect to be charged the right amount of money. You would expect to receive a certain level of service. You would expect your product not to be faulty. And if those things didn't happen, you could expect an apology. Nowadays, and it's, it's a combination of kind of clickbait, the, the desire to find, to see outrage wherever it is, social media amplifying that brands are now accountable for consumers feelings which is really dangerous because rights are absolute you you know what your consumer rights are and you know as a an organization which rights you you have to respect with feelings it's different for every consumer and what we notice with these kind of high profile corporate apologies is more often than not, they're to do with feelings rather than rights. So thinking back to a couple of years ago, I, it was Dove, a cosmetics brand. They had to apologize for an uh, advertising campaign that they'd launched. Now, what had happened is they'd got a range of uh, different models in the advert. They had black models, Asian, white. You know, it was a very diverse cast of models. And the kind of general gist of the advert is model a takes off her sweater and as she's taking it off model b kind of appears so it's a little bit like the michael jackson video for black or white where the edit kind of switches so as the sweater goes over the head the head that comes out is the next model which is fine you know there's nothing wrong with that but there was a clip that circulated that was edited misleadingly, which made it look like a black model had used Dove soap and then became a white model. The implication being that it, it was kind of a, a throwback to the really old offensive soap adverts that did actually use 
before and after models in a racist way. Now, Dove is a huge brand. They spend more than uh, Procter and Gamble, I think it is, who own them, spend more than anyone else in the world on advertising. They're not stupid. They're not going to decide one day, hey, let's go and trash our reputation and, and create a racist advert. They're just, they're not going to do that. But because of the fact that consumers were able to interpret it wrongly and often deliberately wrongly, that was enough for Dove to A, feel that they owed an apology to their consumers and B, to withdraw the entire campaign. Now, that is hugely costly because not only do they have to, you know, they've probably still, they'll have already paid for the advertising space, the airtime. They're going to pay for that again when they put out the new advert. They're going to have to create a new advert. They're going to have to focus group it. They're then going to have to be really, really careful, hypervigilant about the reaction to the next advert. What they could have done is say, this uh, this clip that you're seeing doesn't represent the advert. It's, it's been edited in a certain way. This isn't the message of the advert. We would never create an advert that's that was even close to suggesting what people think it's suggesting. Here's the real thing. They would have got some friction from that. There would have been pushback. But what they were apologizing for, really, when, when you kind of cut the fat from the messaging was we, we're sorry that you were able to misinterpret our advert. We didn't put in enough effort to make it so pure and so squeaky clean that there was no possible misinterpretation. And that happens an awful lot. Brands will they'll do something with the best intentions. And consumers love looking for flaws in things. So they will go, well, hey, this, you know, this could offend this demographic or this is wrong because I'm offended personally, me as, as one person. And instead of the brands being a little bit resilient and saying, well, you know, it's not what we meant, this is what we meant, and, and explaining the default response to criticism, especially around what we call in the book cultural criticism, is to put that fire out immediately with a big bucket of cold water. And that cold water is the apology. But it never works because it's kind of like a signal. It's an invitation for more criticism. And there is a pattern to this. And the media play a, a really key part in amplifying these situations. So they usually start off with one or two criticisms. Then the media will report on those criticisms. And nine times out of 10, they will approach the, the branding question. And that brand then has a has a decision to make. They can either refuse to apologize, and the headline is brand refuses to apologize for advert that, that offended consumers, or brand apologizes for offensive advert. Either way, the media has their headline. And, and I'm talking about the viral news media here who are not necessarily in the business of you know reporting hard facts and verifying things and asking questions. They just you know, three tweets is enough for, for it to be reported as an outrage. So the media will do that because they know people will click on those headlines and they know people will click on those headlines, whether they agree or disagree with what the brand did and whether they agree or disagree with the fact that the, the brand apologized. Yeah, it's a very fraught dynamic in many ways. It is. I kind of feel sorry for my fellow publicists because they have a set of tools at their disposal 
And I guess when everything looks like a crisis, the tool you're going to reach for is is an apology. And and it's, that's kind of to do with the spotlight effect of the bias of, well, you know, 20 people are shouting at me on the internet. So therefore, there must be 20 million people reading this. There's been studies into this about criticism creating a, a perception of greater attention. So when people receive criticism, they think it's it's reaching a bigger audience than when they receive praise. So I can totally relate to the you know the social media manager who is who is looking after a brand account, and they get that you know they get that tweet that says. Uh, usually it's something let's let's say it's i don't know pepsi the tweet will be something like really pepsi question mark you thought this was okay and then it will tag in you know a few slightly higher profile twitter accounts and then one it only takes one of those other twitter accounts to respond and go oh my god i can't believe pepsi thought this was okay you know an advert and it actually did happen to pepsi with the kendall jenner advert a couple of years ago which they apologized for so there's kind of a um, there's a value chain so it will be a consumer that spots something that they don't like they will then usually tweet or you know make a youtube video about it and then what they're doing is they're kind of you know nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd so the minute they get a blue tick verified twitter account to join in that brand is then in trouble and what i'm urging brands to do is take a leaf out of Protein World's book. So Protein World is a UK-based supplement brand, and they had an advert, I can't remember the year, I think it was 2017, on the London Underground Network, and it was was a swimwear model, very fit, athletic-looking model, in a bikini. The slogan was, are you beach body ready? It was an advert for getting fit. It was a weight loss product. So kind of makes sense that they would use a athletic model. People didn't like the advert. They were defacing them. There were protest marches. There were all sorts of hashtags. And it looked just, it was kind of like the perfect storm. And and everybody was expecting Protein World to say, we're sorry, we didn't mean to offend, we've misjudged, we're going to withdraw the advert. What they did was the opposite of that they kind of doubled down and said, well, if you're offended by people who are healthy, then that's your problem. And the reason that I encourage people to just, I'm not saying behave like protein world because they are deliberately provocative. Just go and look at how they handled that crisis. They took the time to think, are are we culpable in any way here? And then when they kind of were sure of themselves, no, we haven't done anything wrong. There is nothing wrong with an athletic swimwear model advertising our product, they used the negative energy that was coming towards them as a positive. And what they knew that a lot of brands didn't know is that for every voice criticizing them, there were 10 people silently sitting there going, I hope they don't apologize, actually, because this is ridiculous. We called that in the book, we called that alienation marketing. So if you're the kind of person that buys a protein supplement you're probably the kind of person that goes to the gym and if you go to the gym and you you're invested in that enough to buy supplements you you're probably either in good shape or you want to be in good shape so you're not going to be offended by the idea that 
a sports slash swimwear model is advertising a product, you're probably going to be more offended by the idea that she shouldn't be advertising that product. So Protein World, they, they've got a whole chapter in the book dedicated to how they handled it because not only did they not apologize, they turned that quote unquote crisis into a huge marketing win. I think I'm, I'm just trying to recall the figures. So their head of marketing said that they did, it took them four days to do a million extra pounds in sales because of the free publicity that the outrage was causing. So while everybody was saying, oh, you know, they should sack their PR guy, they should throw their marketing strategy in the bin, they were actually sort of just sitting back, letting the, the, the cash registers ring and, and watching the money flow in. And it was because they knew who their customer was. So, you know, there is a benefit to not saying sorry. And there are 101 downsides to saying sorry when you shouldn't. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. So for both businesses and also individuals, and these may be different answers, but how should we think about when to say sorry and when to stand our ground? So the timing of it is is actually really interesting. So in terms of when to say sorry, my kind of personal philosophy on that is say sorry a if you've done something wrong and b you are actually sorry so if you apologize you know for anything you're eventually gonna lose trust if it's a a relationship let's say it's your spouse or one of your parents if one of you is always saying sorry at some point the mask's going to slip and people are going to realize they're not really sorry. They're just, they're just saying it. So in terms of how I advise my clients, when to say sorry, if you failed in, in a meaningful way, then you should say sorry. But you don't have to do it immediately. You are allowed to think about it. And there's a study, and the title is Better Late Than Early. I would, I would encourage people to go and look at this study. It's about the timing of apologies. and the title of our book, The Apology Impulse, refers to impulsive apologies, kind of you hear criticism, you say sorry. The science suggests that actually when you do owe an apology, if you leave it, if there is a gap between your transgression and your apology, the recipient of the apology feels feels better about the situation. Instant reflexive apologies are perceived as insincere. So there is a sweet spot. If you leave it too long, 
the person that you owe the apology to will think that you've you know forgotten about it if you do it too soon it will look impulsive so there's a sweet spot somewhere in the middle that suggests that you've engaged in a period of self-examination you've actually put some thought into it and i kind of use the hypothetical example of donald trump if he called a press conference tomorrow and said i've been thinking about 2016 and how, and how i spoke about hillary clinton and i think i owe hillary an apology people's heads would explode not only because it's donald trump and he's not known for you know self-examination and saying sorry but also because that would be a really sincere apology because it, it what's he got to gain from it now nothing if, if he'd apologized at the time when people were saying you should apologize to hillary the second the word sorry left his mouth, people would have rejected it. If he did it now, there's something in that. There is value in taking away what you've done and thinking about it. And some of the best corporate apologies have come after a period of, you know, it could be a few months. Uh, Mitsubishi apologized. I think it was for something. It was for, so Mitsubishi used prisoner of war labor in World War Two, and never said sorry for it. And then obviously, you know, they, they've had dozens of CEOs since that happened. And I think it was 2015, around that time, they decided that they did those people an apology. Now, sadly, a lot of those people had died. So they actually struggled to find somebody to accept the apology. And the person they found, he was in a difficult situation because he was not only being asked to accept an apology to him, but he was being asked to accept an apology on behalf of people who weren't around to accept or reject the apology. So he said, uh, Mitsubishi wanted to fly him over. I think he was based in San Francisco. They wanted to apologize personally and they're willing to pay for his transport and they were going to show him what they were doing to make it right. And he, I, he, I felt sorry for that guy as well because he, he had a lot of uh, pressure on him to say to Mitsubishi, it's okay, we, you know, the people who you're now trying to apologize to, forgive you. So he couldn't speak for everybody. So the interesting thing about that apology was you know, it, it took forever. And, the, and it was the same with um, the makers of thalidomide. It's a morning sickness drug that caused deformities in in babies they took i think it was 50 years i think they actually picked the 50 year anniversary of the scandal uh, coming out to actually issue a proper apology now there's two ways of looking at that you could look at it and go well yeah, it's good that they apologized and it should have come sooner or you could say well at least they put some thought into this this isn't a public relations exercise because the makers of that drug have been making drugs, you know, for the past 50 years, the, the scandal didn't affect them massively. They, you know, they were still making drugs, still making lots of money. So they couldn't be accused of, oh, you're only apologizing now because customers are, are leaving you. That wasn't what it was about. It was a genuine attempt to put things right. So in terms of timing, it is really interesting in terms of how to get there. There's a lot of work that should go on behind the scenes. And like I said earlier, the apology is only part of it. You need a path to recovery and you need to regain trust as well. And it's what you do once you've said sorry or what you say you're going to do that 
matters as much as as how you say sorry and how you say sorry can kind of it can be the difference between another pr exercise that people forget or or actually damages your reputation or it can be the start of improving your reputation some brands have actually improved perceptions of themselves by how they apologized there are lots of ways you can mess up your apology and we explore these in the book so one example that really really gets you know really annoys me is using the passive voice so you know you've been criticized and you want to address it it's really tempting for communicators professional communicators to say things like mistakes were made products were faulty instead of saying we made a mistake or our product was faulty so it's a very subtle but very manipulative use of language kind of sneaky where by using that passive voice you're putting a little bit of um, distance between you the the agent of failure and the act you know the thing that went wrong so passive voice is always a red flag for an insincere apology another huge red flag is what we call in the book schrodinger's apology where the apologizer will give themselves a character reference before they get to the apology now a little thought experiment if you get an email tomorrow and it's from your bank and you're just scanning it and you see the words we take the protection of your data very seriously you could put money on the fact that there is a but coming and it's about to tell you but we advise that you change your password or you know you check your recent transactions these statements these kind of uh, self elevating pats on the back that companies give them uh, give themselves they always cloud the meaning of an apology but it's one of the most common ways an apology can fail so there was a case a few years ago in Toronto and it was a drug testing facility and they were contracted by local government to conduct drug tests on parents who'd had their children taken away so part of the process of being reunited with their children um, was to test negatively for certain drugs over a certain period of time problem was these tests were not accurate and there were a number of and it was pretty much all mothers um, who'd had their children removed on the basis of these tests and then it was later found that those tests were inaccurate so this was a huge huge scandal these these mothers had done what they were supposed to do they they'd um, they'd got help with their addictions and these tests failed them so they'd lost their children on the basis of this company producing inaccurate drug testing results when the court case was over and the ceo of that company had to apologize the first words out of his mouth were we take the accurate something like we you know we ah this was it we have the highest standards of da 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 you don't get to say that when you're addressing your own failure but so many brands will do that they can't help just throwing in a little a little character reference for themselves because they think it makes you know it makes the apology easier to swallow actually it really annoys consumers because they're not stupid they can see through it and in fact it's almost like pavlovian in that when you hear a company talking about we have high standards of or we we care deeply about this 
you almost sense that they're about to tell you, uh, but we failed and we're sorry. So these kind of corporate indulgences where, you know, the communicator, whether that's the CEO, whether that's the, the director of marketing or whoever they are, the person in charge of communicating that message, there's a kind of box of tricks that they'll go through and they go, right, so we've got to say sorry. How do we wriggle out of it? How do we make ourselves look good while saying sorry? And, and if I'm advising these companies and I do tell all my clients this, is don't because consumers aren't stupid and you're just going to make your reputation suffer more than it is already. Just say sorry. Just lead with sorry. Explain why you failed, how you failed and how you're going to put it right. And, and don't say any more than that. Yeah, that's a really good point. It just instead of hedging and qualifying, an authentic apology is going to be a lot more impactful. And it is. You said something earlier, too, that really bears repeating and, and is quite important, which is that a part of a genuine apology, maybe one of the cornerstones of it, is action. Grounding it into some kind of action that you're actually going to take to really move the needle or, or rectify the situation. Yeah, I think the best example of this was the Tylenol uh, poisoning crisis. Now we're going back a, a few decades here, and that is a that is probably the case study in in how to handle a crisis. So the interesting thing about that, because it's often referred to as the the best corporate apology there ever was, the really interesting thing is that James Burke, the CEO of Johnson Johnson, never said the word sorry. And that's because he didn't need to. He was he was busy doing other things. So when when you're trying to get your little packet of medication open and and you're going through what seems like endless layers of protection, so there's the foil, there's all that, there's all that. That's because of the Tylenol poisoning crisis. So Johnson and Johnson learned that they had a problem. Their their product was being tampered with, and people were dying, and people were getting ill. So they effectively switched off the public relations machine and said, right, all of our energy is going into fixing this. And in, I think it was less than six months, they'd created tamper-proof packaging. Now, you don't need to hear the word sorry if the company goes, right, you can now buy our product with confidence because we've gone away and we've innovated and we've fixed the problem. And I think if, if, you're, if your focus is more on how do we fix it rather than how do we protect our reputation in a weird kind of way your reputation protects itself if you're seen to be focused on the problem and protecting your consumers then there will come a time when you can say hey we're sorry and here's what we've done to fix it or here's what we're doing to fix it if you're preoccupied with okay we're getting criticized we need to put that fire out your energy isn't on the problem your energy is on your own reputation and it's so you know it's 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 always been the case but it's more okay. consumers really don't like that and in it kind of it plays out differently depending on the industry you're in as well because let's say there's a problem with starbucks coffee beans you know there's a batch that's been there's a bad batch something like that or even you know starbucks have done an advert that is really distasteful if you're a if you're a consumer, it's it's no real hardship for you to go. Oh well, you know I'm going to get my coffee from one of the hundred and one other takeaway coffee places within 
20 minutes of where I work. Uh, Dunkin' Donuts or, you know, if you're in the UK, there's Costa, Nero. That is what is called a low-friction industry. If I'm a consumer and I fall out with Starbucks, I've got choices. I can go elsewhere. If it's air travel is, is similar in that your airline annoys you enough, you can. there are other airlines. If it's your bank, yes, there are other banks. Or if it's your life insurance company, you do have options, but the friction to exercise that choice is so much higher. If your bank annoys you, you've got to close your account. You've got to find another account. You've got to redirect all of your payments. There will be mistakes. Payments will get lost. You've got to tell everybody, I've changed banks. Here's my new bank details. If you're a business, that is a huge operational undertaking. So what you'll see in, in industries where it's more difficult for people to exercise their choice, the habit for apologizing is actually lower. So that's because Starbucks know if we annoy enough people, they're going to move to one of our competitors. There is always somewhere else to buy a coffee and it's no hardship to walk an extra block past Starbucks down to the other guy that makes good coffee as well. And it happened with Uber a couple of years ago. So in the UK, Uber is the only game in town. If, if, if you want a ride-sharing service, there is no Lyft. Uber is the only company in the UK that does that. In the States, it's, it's a little bit different. You've got Lyft in, in certain cities and probably nationwide now. When Uber fails, people can easily just delete Uber, which was the hashtag. So for listeners who want to concretely implement some of the things we've talked about today, what would be one action step or piece of homework that you would give them to begin implementing some of this into their lives? The best thing that they can do is to, to have a plan before they need a plan. So have a crisis management strategy that includes what to do, A, when you fail, and B, when people think you failed, but you didn't fail. And there is no worse time to try and come up with a crisis plan than when you are in crisis. So if you are facing high volumes of criticism as a, as a brand and you don't have a plan in place, you've already failed. So now is the time to go in and write that plan. What are you accountable for? What are you not accountable for? What are your processes for recovering from failure? And what are your processes for uh, repairing damage with your customers and consumers. And Sean, where can listeners find you and the book and your work online? I'm uh, best found on Twitter. My handle is at Sean O'Mara, which is S-E-A-N-O-M-E-A-R-A. The book is available in Barnes & Noble over there. It's also available if you're passing through an airport in WH Smiths, which I believe have airport branches in America and also in Europe. So they're probably the best places. My company website is essentialcontent.co.uk and that's my consultancy business and people can get in touch with me there and I'm happy to chat via email about all things public relations and all things crisis. Well, Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing these insights. It's a very fascinating look at dealing with crisis. Thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. 
I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.